Well, I want to talk to you just for a minute about time. Time's an interesting concept. And here's just a few fun facts about time. The world's most accurate clock at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Colorado measures vibrations of a single atom of mercury. And supposedly, in a billion years, it will not lose even one second. That's a pretty amazing piece of time work there, isn't it? Here's another interesting fact. Until the 1800s, every village lived in its own little time zone. There weren't standard time zones like we have. So every village had its clock synchronized to the local solar noon. So wherever you would go, it would be a different time. That would be pretty crazy, wouldn't it? Lastly, Einstein showed that gravity makes time run more slowly. So airplane passengers flying where Earth's pole is weaker above the Earth actually age a few extra nanoseconds each flight. Not great news if you're a frequent flyer, right? And <laughs> eh, what's a few nanoseconds? Huh? Well, when we think of how we relate to time, we think in three realities. We think of the past, the present, and the future. And each one is interrelated and affects the other. What happened in the past affects our present reality. And what happens in the present will affect our future. We can also look at time from the opposite perspective. When we consider our future, it can affect how we live in the present. And when we experience reality in the present, how we experience that reality often affects how we view the past. What's even more time-blowing is or mind-blowing, I should say, is that God seems to exist outside of the confines of time. From what we see in the Bible, it's as if God experiences the past, the present, and the future all at once. It's hard for our minds to even comprehend that, isn't it? Because we, we exist in this such a linear way. For us, time just keeps going, marching onward, and it's very linear and sequential. But for God... He exists outside of time. He created time and space. So it's as if it's all happening at once to him. It's hard for us to even understand. But that explains how God knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen, everything that did happen, and everything that will ever happen. Well, today's text has a lot to say about a proper view of the past, present, and future. So let's dive right in, beginning in Philippians 3, 1 to 6. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bible or device, or you can follow along. The words will be up on the screen. So starting in verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. So at the beginning of this passage here, we see that Paul again is going to this joy motif. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And this motif is basically, he wants us to see that as underlying this whole next passage in, of scripture that we're looking at, as he also saw it as underlining all the, all the other passages. We talked about how joy is a constant theme in Philippians and that we see that surface over and over again. And then in verse 2, we see the reason Paul is writing this part of his letter. He says it's a safeguard for the Philippians to protect them from going in the wrong direction. So Paul's looking out for their welfare. He wants to make sure that they don't, they don't go in the wrong path, don't, go, go, don't fall into false teaching. So that, that's why he's writing this section. And then, then next, we see this really interesting line in verse 3, or in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who is Paul talking about here? Well, from what we know of what was happening at that time, Paul's talking about a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught that in addition to having faith in Christ, 
Believers also had to become circumcised and follow the Jewish law, including its various dietary regulations and observance of special days. Well, Paul calls these Judaizers dogs. And he, dogs meant a little different, something a little different in that time than it does now. Now sometimes we even use that term, you know, as a friendly term, right? Like, remember Randy Jackson on American Idol? Hey, dog! You know, it's just kind of a like, yeah, you're, you're one of my homies, you're, 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 you're a bud. Well, in those days, that's not what dogs meant. <laughs> Calling someone a dog was actually a very, very demeaning, insulting term because uh, dogs were generally detested in Greco-Roman society and they were considered unclean scavengers by the Jews. So to call somebody a dog was actually, actually a huge insult. So, so Paul calls these people dogs. He also calls them evil, and he calls them mutilator, mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh is kind of a picturesque term referring to circumcision because that's what the Judaizers are all about. They are obsessed with circumcision that every, every Gentile believer had to be circumcised in order to be saved. So... Paul clearly has a very low opinion of the Judaizers, and he's calling them out right here and saying for the, for the Philippian believers, don't give in to what these, these Judaizers are trying to pull over on you. Paul, Paul also dealt with Judaizers in some of his other letters, in particular in Galatians, and he makes it clear that anytime anybody adds anything to the gospel that we need to disregard them. We need to consider them as, inerrant, as errant teachers, people who are perverting the gospel. So Paul comes out very strongly because he's concerned that these people could lead the Philippian church astray. He wants them to know that it's not by adhering to the law, not by getting circumcised, not by following Jewish regulations that we're saved, that we receive favor with God. It's not about that at all. Paul goes on in verse 3 to call the believers the true circumcision. Now that was significant because circumcision was the special sign that the Israelites were the people of God. So Paul is saying that now the true sign of being a, a person of God is not an outward act like circumcision. No, it's an inward act of putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And so in essence, Paul was calling the believers in Christ the true Israel. He's saying... No longer are the Jewish people, those who, who follow circumcision in the law, people who are the people of God because they chose to reject Christ. He says, now the only people that are truly the people of God are those who embrace Christ, who, who have embraced him as their Lord and Savior. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say he has no confidence in the flesh. He says, he says, in verse 3, let's pick it up there. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to say, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So Paul, again, he's saying, being a person of God, being a follower of God, is not about anything that we can do. It's not about some act that we can perform. It's not about doing good works. No, it's about putting your faith in Christ. And he goes on to say that if anyone has reason to put confidence in their, their own works, put confidence in their own credentials, it's him. And he goes on to, to give seven really good reasons why he would have reason to do that, if anybody would have reason. First of all, he says, I was circumcised on the day, eighth day. He mentions this first because of the context of the people who he's addressing. The Judaizers were demanding that people be circumcised. So Paul's saying, you want circumcision? I'll give you circumcision. I wasn't circumcised later in life because I became a believer. I was circumcised according to the Jewish law on the eighth day. Jewish proselytes, those who would turn, or I should say Gentile proselytes who became followers of the Jewish religion, they would have to get circumcised when they, they were saved, when, when they chose to make that decision. So those people would uh, do it as an adult. I don't even want to think about that and what that pain would be involved there, but I guess they were sincere. So first of all, he deals that. Next credential he gives is he's of the people of Israel. So in other words, he's saying, I'm a natural-born Israelite. 
Naturally born Israelites were considered much higher on the Jewish social spectrum than proselytes or those who later chose to follow the Jewish law, people who were Gentiles who did that. So he's saying, no, I'm not a proselyte. I was born as a person of Israel. Then his next credential is, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's important because it shows that Paul could actually trace his Jewish lineage to the favored tribe of Benjamin. Deuteronomy 33.12 describes Benjamin as the beloved of the Lord, whom the Lord loves and who rests between his shoulders. Benjamin was also the tribe that the first Israelite king came out of, who incidentally his name was Saul, which was Paul's namesake, because we know his name originally was Saul, later turned to Paul. Um, We also know that it was the only tribe that joined Judah when the other ten tribes broke away and rejected the Davidic covenant. Benjamin stayed true and continued to to, uh, stay with Judah and continued to uh, follow, you know, the Jewish ways, whereas the ten tribes became apostate, turned away, and and, uh, were generally kind of considered outcasts in the end. So... Paul's saying, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got legitimate Hebrew lineage here. And he sums those things up by saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That sums up the position Paul enjoyed because of his birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Next, Paul goes to the things that he has done on his own, not that he was born into. He says, I was a Pharisee. And we know from, from the Bible and from you know, other documents from the day that the Pharisees were the strictest observers of the Jewish law. And they were the most highly esteemed people in Jewish culture. And, and Paul also was a pupil, he doesn't mention this here, but he was a pupil of Gamaliel, who was one of the most uh, respected Pharisees. So Paul had, Paul's, Paul's saying, hey, I wasn't just a Jew, I was hardcore. Okay, I was a Pharisee. And then he goes on even further. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Paul had not just been an everyday run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He'd made it his personal mission to stamp out the early Christian movement, which the Jewish leaders saw as enemies of the Jewish faith. And Paul actually felt like he was doing a service to God by doing that. He felt like the the, the Christians were people who were departing from the Jewish law, they were following their own ways, they were following this Jesus person, and this was not what, what the Jewish religion was all about. So he started, started persecuting them, putting them in prison, having them killed. So he's saying, you know, as far as Jews go, man, I, I was the ultimate. And then lastly, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul had strictly observed all the Jewish dietary laws, the ceremonial cleansing laws, the Sabbath laws, the observance of special days. Saul Saul was a hardcore Jew, okay? So he's saying, if anybody had reason to put their confidence in their credentials, in the things that they had done, what he calls the works of the flesh, it was me. But he goes on in verse 7, and he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes on to say that he now considers those human credentials he was just talking about, all of those those great things that he had been born into and supposedly had done, he says, I consider those as garbage compared to the surpassing 
greatness of knowing Christ. You know, the term gar garbage is probably not even strong enough. When we look at that term in the Greek, it could, it could be rendered as dung or street filth. So, so Paul is saying, I see absolutely no value in all of those things. There's no value in my credentials. There's no value in my works, those things I have done. They mean nothing to me. And he, and he goes on to say, not only that, but I consider everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. All of it is as nothing to me now. That's, that's a pretty amazing statement for somebody who had done the things that he had done. He says, it's all worthless compared to knowing Christ. Paul, he goes on in verse 9, and he makes it clear that true righteousness, right standing before God, comes through faith in Christ, not by any, any human... Uh, not, not by any human credential, not by any good works. It's only by faith in Christ. That's the amazing, joy-filled good news of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it amazing to know that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor? There's nothing that we can do to work our way to heaven. There's no good amount of good works that we can do. And this is a common, isn't this a common fallacy in our culture today? You hear that all the time. People say, well, if, you know, I'm just tr I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to, you know, be the best person I can. You know, I'm trying to, you know, do more good things than bad things. We hear those kind of things, and, and they think that that is going to earn their way to eternal life. But Paul makes it really clear. Those things are of no value. God considers them as nothing. There, there is nothing that those things can do to gain us right standing in God. The only thing is knowing Christ. The only thing is having faith in Christ, having belief in him. When Paul, Paul talks about knowing Christ, he means to have a personal acquaintance. That word means to have a personal acquaintance or to know by experience. That was Paul's desire, was to know Christ so intimately that it was like a personal friend, somebody, somebody that he, he would always go to, somebody that he'd love and want to spend time with. For Paul, knowing Christ by experience manifested itself in two ways. He talks about those two ways. First of all, he says, I want to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. That's the part that we don't really kind of like so much, right? The knowing Christ by participating in his sufferings. And this had really special significance for Paul, right? Because number one, he was in prison at the time. He was, he was writing this letter from prison, and so he was experiencing suffering firsthand. firsthand. He was probably chained to a soldier, had to be chained to a soldier all the time. Just imagine that, having an iron shackle around your wrist all the time and being chained to, chained to another person 24-7. Um, Paul, Paul was personally suffering, but also we saw earlier in the book of Philippians that the people of Philippi were suffering too. They were getting opposition because of their stand for the faith in their culture. And so, so both of them could relate to what Paul was talking about. And it's really important to know this. Paul doesn't consider suffering itself as a prize or, or something amazing. It's not like he was going, yes, I love pain. Oh, bring on some more bad times. Keep them rolling. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that through that adversity, through that suffering, we get to participate with Christ in the suffering that he went through. It's like we are relating to Christ. We are relating to what he went through on earth when he went through the suffering that was, he was subjected to. And even to his death, we're, we're, we're in a way participating in his death. But the good news is the other way that Paul says we can know Christ is by sharing in his resurrection, Right? He says, by sharing in Christ's sufferings, by becoming like Christ in his death, we then get to one day raise from the dead. We get to be part of the resurrection. We're going to get these new bodies where we are going to get to be with Christ in heaven someday. And for Paul, it was all about Christ. It was all about being with Christ. We go on in, in verse 13, or, or actually, let's look at uh, Verses, uh, verse 12 first. In verse 12, Paul says, 
he doesn't feel like he's yet arrived in his Christian walk. And that's saying something for Paul, right? By this time, Paul had probably been a believer for 30 years or so because the book of Philippians was, was later, later in um, his life. And so Paul had, had done some pretty amazing things, right? He, he had, if, if anyone could probably say, you know what, I've arrived. I, I, I've done, done some pretty amazing things and, and I'm, I'm where I need to be. That would be Paul, right? But Paul says, no, I don't consider myself already to have obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. For Paul, it was like being in a long-distance race. And that's kind of the imagery, imagery he uses here. Like a runner in a race, he says he's not looking behind, but he's looking ahead. One of the, one of the key things they train sprinters to do is when you're sprinting, you never turn to look at the, race, the runners behind you because in so doing, you lose precious time and you're going to lose the race. So Paul kind of uses that imagery. He says, I'm not looking behind. No, I'm straining ahead. I'm straining for the finish line. I'm straining for the goal. And for Paul, what was that goal? That goal was knowing Christ fully. And he knew that one day he would know Christ fully in heaven. But he saw now his time on earth as a continual race, a continual journey. And, and we should consider that the same way, shouldn't we? Just, be, just because you're a seasoned saint who's been in, in the faith for a lot of years, it doesn't mean that you can say, well, yeah, I pretty much got all this down, pretty much understand all this, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good with where I'm at right now. No, Paul says, if I haven't even arrived yet, I, he says, I, I don't consider myself yet to take, have taken hold of all this. I... I'm on the race. I'm in the race. I'm, I'm striving for that goal of being like Christ and, and meeting Christ and being with Christ. There's some interesting wordplay there in that verse too when he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. When we, can, when we think of Christ taking hold of Paul, we, Paul may have been thinking back to that time when he was on the Damascus road. Remember, he was on, in, on his way to Damascus because persecuting Christians in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem wasn't good enough for him, so he'd taken it to other cities too, so he was on his way to do the same thing. And, and remember, Jesus appeared to him in a vision. Boom, this bright light came. It blinded Paul and and. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He got Paul's attention in the, the most profound way possible because it says Paul had to be led from that place into the city of Damascus. It actually blinded him. The light was so blinding, the light of Jesus. And so we know what happened from there. He went on and, and he started praying and fasting in Damascus. Paul sent a believer named Ananias who came to him prayed for him, and the, the Bible says something like scales fell from his eyes, and all of a sudden he could see. And Paul gave his life to the Lord, boom, on the spot there. He became a follower of Christ. And so if he, you can definitely see what he's talking about, that God had taken hold of him. He had taken hold of Paul and said, boom, I'm going to put you in a position where you're either going to follow me or your life is going to basically be over for everything as, as far as you know it, right? But Paul says, just like God, is, Christ has taken hold of me, I want to take a hold of Christ. I want to pursue him and take hold of him and be like him and be with him. So that's some interesting wordplay there in that verse. But an, an, another important concept is in verse 13. In fact, this is going to be our big idea for the day from this verse. Paul says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So our big idea based on this verse is put the past behind you and keep Christ before you. Can you guys help everybody say that with me? Put the past behind you. Keep Christ before you. One more time. Put the past behind you. Keep Christ before you. That's, that is like the key passage, the big idea of this, of this passage. 
the idea is that, number one, we need to put the past behind us. Paul says, forgetting the past. And by forgetting the past, Paul doesn't mean it's like wiped from our memory. Obviously, Paul, you know, he sometimes talks about the things that happened in the past. He talks about, you know, what he had done as, as a, you know, Jewish zealot. He talks about how Christ had taken hold of him. But the idea is that our focus is no longer on the past. That we don't let the past define us. We don't let our past rule us. For Paul... And for us, the past has two major components, right? The good and the bad. Paul could have beat himself up over, over his past of persecuting Christians. Now he realizes what an error that is, how, how he had actually, you know, had a hand in seeing believers' lives snuffed out. He, he could have continued to beat himself over the head about that all the time. But Paul says, no, I forget the past. The past is in the past. I'm going to strive for what's going on in the future. The other, com- the other component is of the past is the good part of our past, right? Now, Paul could have also, by focusing on his past, become proud of what he had done in Christ, right? He could have be- become proud of all the churches he had started, all the people he had won to Christ, all the miracles he had done. But Paul knew that the key to the future does not lie in the past, but in the present. He continues to press on and strain ahead toward the final goal, to know Christ and ultimately be with him in heaven. Again, that big idea, put the past behind you, keep Christ before you. That's what it was all about for Paul. Picking it up in verse 15, Paul says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In verse 15, Paul challenges the Philippians to follow his mindsets, his mindset that he had laid out in those previous verses and saying, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul's probably calling them to live their life in keeping with how they had already begun to follow Christ. Because we know that they were believers, they were following Christ, they were trying to do what was right. But it appears now, in the face of this opposition they were facing, in the face of this persecution, and some internal dissension that was going on in in the church there, some of the Philippians had lost their focus. They lost their focus on Christ as the crucified and risen Lord. So Paul is challenging them back to that. He's challenging them to have this mindset of keeping Christ before you. Then Paul contrasts those who are following Christ in his ways with those who are doing the opposite. He calls those people enemies of the cross. Perhaps those are the people who were opposing the Philippians, the people whose focus was only on earthly things. But Paul says, what is their destiny? Their destiny is destruction. And so he contrasts the Philippian believers with them. He says, you're not like them. You're not like those people who are just focused on their their human appetites and following earthly things. No. He says, you are citizens in heaven. So he's focusing them on their citizenship. Not their citizenship on earth, but their citizenship in heaven. Now this would have been very relatable to the Philippian church because remember we talked about Philippi was a Roman colony. So, in a sense, the, the people of Philippi were, were members or they were participants of the community of Philippi, but they were Roman citizens. They were citizens of Rome. So, Paul is using that analogy to say, just like that, you are heavenly citizens. Our citizenship isn't here on earth. This is not what our ultimate reality is. Our ultimate reality is is in heaven with with Christ. So 
Paul, Paul also says we eagerly, eagerly await a Savior from there. The Greek word for eagerly wait has the implication of anticipating, like on tiptoes, or, or just this intense longing. So, Christ, so Paul is saying we have this intense longing to be with Christ, to be with him one day in heaven. Paul also notes, notes about Jesus in verse 21. He says, by his power, he brings everything under his control. That's important to the Philippian believers because they were under the control of the oppression the oppressive Roman emperor, the oppressive Roman government. So it, in a sense, it felt like their lives were out of their control. But Paul is saying, Jesus Christ, he is ultimately bringing everything under his control. And then he goes on to say, he will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. So in that last part of the verse, he's saying, hey, Philippians, you have this glorious future in Christ. Your frail, weak, earthly bodies will one day be transformed to be like Christ's glorious, perfect, indestructible, heavenly body. That's the per perfect culmination, culmination of our big idea, isn't it? To put the past behind you, but to keep Christ before you. And the ultimate thing in Christ is that one day we're going to be with him in heaven with these new bodies that don't feel pain, that don't feel suffering. I know that uh, as I start getting older and older, Pain and suffering becomes more of a, a daily reality. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that, right? I'm looking forward to that one day having that body that is not subject to that pain and suffering, right? Let's, we're we're going to look at just three last verses here, Philippians 4, 1 to 3. Paul kind of puts a bow on this section by saying, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead you with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So here we see two final appeals that Paul makes to the Philippians. They put feet to the concept of keeping Christ before us. These two appeals relate to the points from the previous two chapters and our two, two previous sermons of the last two weeks. The first, first appeal is to, is to, uh, to uh, stand firm in Christ, right? Stand firm in Christ. And this relates to our sermon that we were talking about two weeks ago and what Paul talked about in Philippians 1. Remember, we talked about joy through adversity. We talked about how God is calling us to persevere through perversity, through yeah. Let me try that again. Persevere through adversity. That's a, that's a tongue twister. So Paul, Paul's first appeal to the Philippians is stand firm. You know, don't give ground. He uses that military terminology again. Don't give ground, but stand firm and don't let adversity overtake you. His second appeal that he gives in verse 2 is what we talked about last week, right? So he's, he's talking about specific, he's giving specific instance now of what he was talking about in chapter two last week. He's talking about a situation that was happening in the Philippian church where there was some disunity going on. So in particular, there was two women who were apparently leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and they were engaged in some sort of conflict. We don't know what it was about, but uh, Paul addresses it here and he pleads with these people to have unity and to think with the same mind, the same mind as Christ, in other words. So that Paul refers to these women as co-workers shouldn't be a surprise, right? Because the Philippian church had its beginning with some Gentile women. We, we talked about that in our first, our first week of Philippians. And those women who were referred to as God-fearing women um, had met by the river on the Jewish Sabbath for prayer. And remember, that's where Paul found them, and he told them the way of following Christ, and many of them became believers in Christ. So these, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, may have been two of those original women, but in any event, they, they obviously had some leadership in the, in the church. Now, Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't say who is right or who's wrong. Maybe he didn't even know what the argument was about. Maybe he did, but... Paul appeals them to them to have unity. 
And then not only does he, he doesn't leave them to just try to figure this out himself. He appeals to, to someone else who he calls his genuine companion or loyal yoke fellow, some translations call him. Um, and he says for this person to help these two women to respond to his, to a, his appeal for unity. Um, the term he uses for, for that companion or yoke fellow would seem to indicate that it was one of Paul's companions on his travels. So it had been a person that had traveled with Paul as he went around, and, but now was probably, um, had stayed behind in the Philippian church and was helping the church there. Um, some scholars think that it may have been Luke because we see in Acts chapter 16 where when Paul goes to Philippi, Luke talks about himself as being part of the party. But after 16, then he, doesn't, he, he describes Paul as them and not being as part of the party. So it may be that Luke stayed behind in Philippi. And now Paul is appealing to him to help these two women to come together in unity. In any case, Paul wants them to work, work, out, work out their conflict, right? He says that's not what we should be about in Christ. We should be about people who are having the same mind, being like-minded, having Christ's mind. And when we do that, then we will come together. So Paul concludes the section by referencing Clement, who we don't know anything about, and the rest of Paul's co-workers. That's probably the rest of the Philippian believers. And he says that their names are written in the book of life. And again, again, Paul's focusing on that future orientation of keeping Christ before us, which affects how we live right now. All right, so that's the exposition of, of these passages. I want to wrap things up by talking about how does this apply to us? How can we put feet to this in our own lives? How can we make this something that's of value to us? So let's take a look at our big idea, those two parts of the big idea the first part, remember, is put the past behind you. And putting the past behind you has several applications. The first one is, don't rely on your own credentials or good works for salvation. Don't rely on your own credentials or good works for salvation. And that's the first blank in your, in your handout there. Paul makes it clear that no matter what good things you've done, they fall short of God's righteous standard. We talked about that, right? This, this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we all sin, we all deserve death. But then Paul also says in Ephesians 2.8.9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So again, we, we see clearly from this passage and from other places in the gospel, we can't rely on our own good works for salvation. We should never think that we can earn our way to heaven or do enough good things to deserve heaven. And you know what? Sometimes isn't it easy even for us as Christians to kind of fall into that way of thinking a little bit, to start thinking, yeah, you know what? I need to... I'm not doing enough good things to, to be right before God. I, I better, or I'm kind of messing up in this area, so I'm not sure if I'm really, you know, a, a believer. No, we got we to gotta keep going back to it's about grace. It's about God's grace. It's not about our works and what we do. Our works should be a faith response to our faith, right? They should be a, a way of saying, hey, yes, we want to, we want to do good works because that's how we please God and that's how we bring honor and glory to God. But that's not what saves us. That's not whatever makes us right. So we need, to, we need to keep that in mind. Secondly, another application for putting the past behind you is don't let what God has forgiven in the past hinder your present and future. Don't let what God has forgiven in the past hinder your present and future. You know, even if we haven't murdered anyone, all of us probably have things in our past that we could continue to beat ourselves over the head with, right? All of us have made mistakes. We all have. When people, honestly, when, some people, when I hear some people say, you know, at the end of their life or older life, I have no regrets, I can't relate to that at all. 
because I have all kinds of regrets. I, I have all kinds of mistakes and, and things I wish I could go back and do differently or things that I, that I you know, know I messed up. And I think most of us are there if we're really honest with ourselves. But God doesn't want us to continue to beat ourselves over the head with the past. He's forgiven us. It's under the blood. It's behind us. He says in, in Psalm 103, 11 to 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God, God has taken those transgressions and he has removed them as far from us as, as the east is from the west. He also says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God, the God who can do everything, the God above everything, actually chooses to forget our sins. He chooses to, when we are in Christ, to say, they're, they're gone, they're done with. I have no record of those things. It's as if they never happened. So if God has forgiven us and completely taken our sin away and chosen to forget our sins, why do we keep dredging them up, right? Why do we keep beating ourselves over the head with, a, with that? I think it's because in some way we feel like we got to punish ourselves, you know, for our sin to, and that somehow maybe that's going to give us more favor with God. No, it's not the case. God wants us to be done with them. It's in the past and to put it in the past and leave it there. Now, I do want to add one aside. Sometimes there's things that have happened in our past that are so traumatic and so have, you know, made such an imprint on our lives that we need help to deal with those things. And that's where a good Christian counselor can really be of value in helping you to resolve something in the past that you just can't get past. Sometimes that, that happens. And it, it, I encourage you, seek a good Christian counselor and, and get help for that because God doesn't want you to continue to beat yourself up over that. So don't let what God has forgiven in the past hinder your present and future. And the last application for putting the past behind you is don't let the past define your future. This happens in at least two ways. The first is defining yourself by past failures. There's a story of a man who in the span of four years who lost his job, ran for the state legislator and was defeated, failed in business, had his sweetheart die, and had a nervous breakdown. He later ran for and was elected to the state legislature. However, in subsequent years, he was defeated in running for the state speaker, and he was also defeated as a nomination for Congress. Later, he was elected to Congress, but then lost that renomination. He went on to experience failure after failure as he was rejected for land officer, defeated for the U.S. Senate, defeated for the nomination for vice president, and again defeated for U.S. Senate. But then... In 1860, he was elected as President of the United States, and Abraham Lincoln went on to become, in the opinion of many, the greatest president our, our country has ever had. Abraham Lincoln was a man of faith, and he refused to let himself be defined by his past failures. In the same way, we, we can't let ourselves be defined by our past failures, can we? We need to make sure that that's not the definition of who we are now. There's... You know, there's, there's a way that we can be defined by our past. In fact, there's a, there's a couple ways. One is be de defined by our failure, but the other way is being defined by our past successes. When we define ourselves by our past successes, we tend to become reliant on what worked in the past, right? The problem is our world's changing so fast that what worked in the past is often not what works now, and even less what is going to work in the future. Sometimes relying on past successes results in a longing for the good old days, and we become resistant to change, using words like, we've never done it that way before. Paul's, Paul makes it clear that past successes are not how we should define ourselves. Paul was not, not resting on his laurels, right? First of all, he wasn't resting on his credentials of you know, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, and then he wasn't resting even on his credentials of being, you know, a man of faith, you know, a man of faith who started churches, led people to Christ. He says, I haven't, I haven't gained it yet. I'm still pressing forward. I'm still pressing ahead for what's in front of me. So 
we need to make sure that we are not relying on our past fail or failures to define us. We're not living in that. And we're not relying on our past successes to define us. We can't rest on our credentials or what we've done in the past. Don't let the past define your future. The second, the second part of our big idea is keep Christ before you. And there's two applications I want to talk about with that. First, make Christ the daily focus of your life. Make Christ the daily focus of your life. You know, personally, I'm challenged by how consuming knowing Christ was for Paul. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul had, for Paul, nothing else mattered compared to Christ. It was this everything else was secondary. Everything else was, was of, of secondary importance. I'm challenged by that. To have that same passion for Christ that Paul had, to have, to have that passion to know him and want, and want to have him as the, the main focus of my life. I think that the way that we can get to that place, or at least be on a journey to doing that, is by our daily practices, right? If we want Christ to be the focus of our life, it needs to affect our daily habits, our daily practices. So we do things by, by having reading, you know, Bible reading plans. That's a way that we can continue our daily focus on Christ. We have daily prayer times. We thank God throughout the day, and we look for where he is looking, working in our daily lives. So our daily habits should reflect that focus on, on Christ. Make Christ the daily focus of your life. And then the second application, and our last one, is let your relationship with Christ inform everything you do. Let your relationship with Christ inform everything you do. When we keep Christ before us, as, we, as our big idea says, this should inform everything in our lives, right? Our relationships with Christ should affect how we spend our free time, how we spend our money, how we view the world. It should affect our marriage. It should affect how we parent, how we grandparent, how we interact with people at work, and how we react with people at church. We must submit every part of our life to Christ and seek him for how to live our, out our life in a way that will bring him glory and honor. So we need to let our relationship with Christ inform everything we do. That, for Paul, is, is what knowing Christ was all about. Knowing Christ wasn't just a relationship. It was something that transformed every part of his life. And it should be the same for us. Our big idea, putting the past behind you, keep Christ before you. On the screen right now are just a few practical action steps regarding how we could possibly make some of these things happen. I encourage you right now, you know, to put, as we said, put feet to what we're talking about, to put it into practice like it says in James, not to just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. So I encourage you to take that action card out right now and just write down, down one, or, one or two of these things on that card that you want to focus on this week. So there, there's some suggestions for you. Maybe post the promise of God's forgiveness where you'll see it. So write down one of those verses and put it on your mirror so you're going to see it every day this week just to remind you, yes, I'm forgiven. Or write down way, ways of past failure can be building blocks for future success. Failure is, is not the end, right? Failure is something to build on. It's something to grow from, to learn from. So if we, we can take that adversity and use it for, to, to help us in the future. Start a new Bible reading plan. The, are, are most of you familiar with um, the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app? If you don't have that, I encourage you to get that. It has almost every translation of the Bible possible in it. And, and the really cool thing is it has dozens and dozens of reading plans, everything from seven-day reading plans to, to year-long read-through-the-Bible plans. So I'm, it's a great way, you know, we always have our phone with us. It's a great way to just, you know, plug, the, plug into the Word on our, on our phone through the Bible app and make that a daily habit by, by engaging in a Bible plan. Um, another way might be to write down a way that your relationship with Christ will inform one of those things. In other words, say, you know what, this week um, I'm going to let 
let uh, my relationship with Christ inform my finances. I'm going to take a look at my financial situation and how I can honor God with, with my giving. Or maybe in my marriage, I'm going to let inform my marriage. I'm going to ask, you know, I'm, I'm going to focus on how Christ can, can transform something in my marriage. What, I, what can I do this week as just a first step to make that happen? So those are just some ideas for some practical things that you can do to put this into, into effect in your life this week. I just ask you to bow, bow your heads, close your eyes with me, and we're going to we'll close in prayer. You know, one thing I want to do, I mean, I know that probably most of you here are people who have been in the faith many years, so this isn't relevant to you, but there may be someone in this, in this place uh, here today that's just like, you know what, I, don't, I really don't have a relationship with Christ. And right now I'm seeing that, the importance of that. I'm seeing that having a relationship Christ with Christ, you know, will not only give me eternal life, but it's going to help me and impact my life right now. And I just want to give you the opportunity to, uh, to give your life to the Lord right now. You know, it starts by just making a step in our, in our heart and our mind and saying, God, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. I, I, wanna, I want you to be in my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to forgive me of my past, forgive me of those sins. I want to put all that behind you, behind me, and I want to follow you. If that's, if that's you right now, and you're just saying, yeah, I want to make that step today, I just ask you, just look up at me right now so that I can pray with you, and, and I want to do that for you. So just, if you're saying, I want to follow Christ today, I need to do that for the first time, just, just look at me right now, and, and I will be happy to pray with you for that. Okay. Awesome. Lord God, I just thank you so much for everybody who's in this place right now, Lord. And I thank you for those who are, are saying right now, God, I, I want a relationship with you. I want you in my life. I need you to inform everything that I do. I need you to transform my life because I'm, I realize that the way I'm doing things isn't working so well. And so I need your help. I need you to follow, uh, to, to be in my life. I want to follow you. I want you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of the wrong things I've done. I'm just asking you to do that right now. And I just encourage you, just those of you who are doing that for the first time today, just pray along with me in that way. Just pray in your heart and mind saying, yes, Lord, I give my life to you right now. I want to follow you. Forgive me of my sin. Lord, I pray that as people are doing that, God, that you would forgive them of their sins. Lord, take them completely away. Wipe them away. Let them, let them know it's something now that you are choosing to forget. It's in the past. It's completely done with. And Lord, I pray that you will help, help all of us in this place to follow you, God. Help us all, all of us to follow you in a greater way. Help all of our lives to be informed by what you want to do in our lives, by our relationship with you. God, we just say to you right now, we love you. We want you. We want to pursue you. We want more of you in our lives. And we ask you to accomplish that. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's been fantastic being with you again. I appreciate all of you, and I encourage you to go out this week and consider how you can know Christ better and put him to practice in your life. Putting the past behind us and keeping Christ before us. Be blessed.